Good afternoon. I'm Christopher Preble, the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for being here today, and thanks also to our outstanding conference staff who do so much to help us organize these events, and they all come off without a hitch. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching uh, at Cato.org online. Uh, we're here to discuss clear and present safety. The world has never been better and why that matters to Americans. Uh, by Michael Cohen and Micah Zenko. Uh, before we hear from the authors on this important and timely book, I, I just want to say a few things about uh, its central theme, threat inflation. Threat inflation in this instance is the inventing or exaggerating of threats to U.S. national security. It's practiced on a daily basis by policymakers, pundits, and other members of what Cohen and Zenko dub the threat industrial complex. In clear and present safety, Cohen and Zenko note that there is, quote, a fundamental disconnect between what Americans have been encouraged to believe about the world and the reality of global affairs, unquote. They explain how and why politicians, policy analysts, academics, and journalists are misleading Americans about foreign threats and ignoring more serious national security challenges at home. And they argue that we should ignore Washington's threat mongering and focus instead on furthering extraordinary global advances in human development and economic and political cooperation. As they note, threat inflation has a tendency to stifle debate and limit policy choices or lead to bad policies. It also creates a national sense of anxiety and pessimism. In 2017, the American Psychological Association found that 59% of Americans said we are at the lowest point in U.S. history they can remember. That includes 56% of Americans who were alive at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack. <clears throat> Most Americans believe things are bad and getting worse. But that is exactly wrong. For years, uh, no, probably more closer to decades, Cato scholars have been pushing back against the politics of fear and pessimism. For example, in 2013, Cato launched humanprogress.org, a website dedicated to demonstrating all the ways in which the world is good and getting better. The website requires no registration or membership. All of its content and features can be used for free, but acknowledgement is always appreciated. I encourage everyone to check it out. Congrats to my colleagues, Marian Tupi and Chelsea Follett, who are the brains behind that operation. But also, thanks to Michael and Micah, uh, while it is true that Cato scholars have been pushing back on threat inflation for years, it was their 2012 Foreign Affairs article, also titled Clear and Present Safety, that motivated us uh, here at Cato to host a full-day conference on the topic in 2013. And this then led to our publishing A Dangerous World, question mark, a book that I co-edited with John Mueller, uh, dedicated to correcting the record on many of the most touted threats to our national security. Since then, we've been focused on this issue, and today, uh, here at Cato, we're announcing the launch of the project to counter threat inflation. You can learn more about it by visiting the website, uh, www.cato.org forward slash threat correction. That's www.cato.org forward slash threat correction. Anyway, as you can see, uh, Cato is the perfect place for Micah and Michael to discuss their book, and I think it is their first public event. Is that, that's right, right? The first public event. So let me tell you a little bit more about them in the order that they will speak. Uh, first up is Micah, Micah Zenko. He is the Director of Research and Learning at McChrystal Group. He was 
Uh, before that, he was with the Chatham House. He was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations until 2017. He also worked at the Brookings Institution, the Congressional Research Service, and the Office of Policy Planning at the State Department. He is, of course, also a regular columnist at Foreign Policy Online, and his writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, and I mentioned Foreign Affairs. He's been there a number of times, of course. He's the author of two other books, between Threats and War, U.S. Discrete Military Operations in the Post-Cold War World, and Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy. Micah holds a Ph.D. from the Department of Politics at Brandeis University. And then we'll hear from Michael Cohen. He's a regular contributor for the Boston Globe on national politics and foreign affairs. He's also the author of American Maelstrom, the 1968 Election and the Politics of Division, his work has appeared in dozens of news outlets, including The Guardian, Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs. He previously worked as a speechwriter in the State Department, has been a lecturer at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and is the purveyor of the Truth and Consequences newsletter. So with that, uh, Micah, take it away. Thank you. Thank you. Why you and why don't, you, why don't you stand at the podium? It's just easier for the end. Thanks. That's how you know it's official when you're standing at a podium. <laughs> Uh, it's grateful uh, for the opportunity for us to come here and share our thoughts because uh, Cato has been at the forefront of this issue for so long. Um, and your scholarship and your efforts to try to promote this complement well with our book. And it was really great to hear you mention John Mueller, who, of course, has been one of the people who have talked about this issue and screamed it for almost 30 years. And a lot of the work we do builds upon the work of people like John Mueller and the work of uh, scholars like Cato. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the state of the world today, but just to give you a big picture um, take on what our book is about, it's about what we believe is a fundamental misdiagnosis of US foreign policy and the state of the world. Um, it's a misdiagnosis that both misrepresents what has happened over the uh, face of the earth over the last 30 years. It increases the perception of threats to the US homeland and to US people. Um, and that threat inflation is consequential, not, be, not just because it leads to a misprioritization of resources and political tension, but it um, essentially allows us to misdiagnose and undervalue uh, the real systemic threats, risks, and harms that Americans face. All of those are domestic. They are within ourselves and within our neighborhoods and within our communities. Um, and so Michael will talk a little bit more about that picture at home, but just to give you a steady uh, uh, sort of ground level of how we see the world over the last 25 and 30 years. We start the book by sort of looking at a survey, a series of surveys that have been given to uh, American people, asking them um, whether they think the world is becoming a better or worse place. And inevitably, every one of these surveys, uh, just to give you a couple of the, of the, the datas, they estimate that the global poverty rate has increased, almost 90% of all people. They believe that the literacy rate has either declined or stayed the same. They believe that life expectancy has basically stayed the same over the last 30 years. And by the key metrics of how you would assess human development and global progress, which are basically longevity, prosperity, and education, the story is radically different. So uh, just a couple of the numbers. In 1990, life expectancy for someone born then was 65. Um, today, it's, it's 72 years old. By way of comparison, in 1950, life expectancy wasn't 72 in any country on Earth. Um, under five, child mortality has been halved. Maternal mortality rates have been uh, declined by 20, 45% as a result of sort of a global effort regarding the uh, Millennium Development Goals. 
efforts of WHO, Rotary International, the Gates Foundation, um, 13 million AIDS-related deaths have been staved, 53 million TB deaths, 650,000 polio-related deaths in just the last 30 years. Um, subsequently, the number of people living in extreme poverty in the developing world has gone from half of the population to less than one in 10 in just 30 years. Uh, education uh, rates have uh, climbed all over the world, particularly for younger women. And in the last 30 years, the global literacy rate has climbed from 61% to 85% of everybody on Earth. That's just the sort of well-being of most people on Earth. And as we sort of point out in the book, uh, despite the clear examples of areas in South Asia, parts of Southeast Asia, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, people who are being left behind, the, prog the, the general progress trends, it has never been a better, it has never been better for more people, for a greater proportion of the people on Earth than it is today. Um, this is also a couple of the other metrics we look at are democratization and violence, essentially freedom and warfare. And one of the ways that we look at this is even over time, the number of people who experience warfare in their lives has declined markedly. So if you lived in 1800, one in every 2,000 people, civilians and combatants, died a, died a war-related death. In 1900, it was one in um, 20,000. Today, it's one in 100,000. So basically, fewer people experience war at any period in their lifetimes. Fewer experience are both casualties as well as fatalities of warfare. But the primary form of violence that people experience on, this, on Earth is actually self-violence. So even for the last 50 years, more people have killed themselves than have died from all other forms of violence. Um, and here, the news is also tremendously good. Uh, since 1990, the global suicide rate has gone from 17 per 100,000 people to 12 per 100,000 people. And actually, in 2010, the United, the United States suicide rate has actually gone up 22% in the last 15 years. And, and in 2010, it was quite interesting that the global suicide rate went like this, and the US suicide rate passed it. And now, the US has been passed it ever since. Um, even when you look at forms of democratization, the story of which has been quite dismal over the last 12 to 13 years, a greater proportion of people are living in free societies than at any time in human history as well. So if you look at the key metrics of longevity, education, prosperity, freedom, and freedom from violence, it's never been a better story across the board. Now what's interesting is that these descriptions are almost never related in any, uh, um, any news stories. And if you look for positive news portrayed in the, in the media about the world, you literally can't find it. Because positive news is not a discrete event. It requires education and history and context. And so when it happens, it's such a rare, outstanding event that it's almost um, um, extraordinary. So you might have seen the New York Times like three weeks ago. There was the second case. It was a front page New York Times story. It was the second case of somebody who um, was HIV positive, and they had reversed the, trend, had reversed the growth uh, of the disease in this person's body. And this is described as an extraordinary, amazing event. What wasn't told in that story is that 13 million people have not died from AIDS who would have died just, as, just in 2005, and that the AIDS death rate has declined for 13 years in a row, right? So that more positive, longer-term trend is not told because it requires the time and context that, the, um, that we don't see in, 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 in today's news. But one of the other points we make is about threat inflation, and this gets to more of the issue of national security threats, is that we have this what we call the grand tradition of threat inflation. And it's not just that national security advisors, generals standing behind podiums, politicians and media individuals sort of overrepresent foreign threats. 
but they um, depict them as, as if they're going to happen to you and your families and to the homeland. And so we look at a few different examples of this. The big, the big key area is if you, if you know the Monroe Doctrine, which essentially established one half of the earth as belonging to the US and as a vital national interest to the United States. And we talk about, remember, the main down with Spain, which leads to some of the wars of the late 19th century. We have a whole series on the, do, on the domino theory, which was the belief that if we don't fight communist forces in Southeast Asia, we will be fighting them uh, in the United States. And we have this great LBJ memo where he says, we must decide whether to help Southeast Asian countries or throw in the towel and pull back our defenses to San Francisco, San Francisco and become Fortress America. So, and then in 1980, Jimmy Carter essentially made the Middle East part of America when he declared that the uh, sort of security of the Middle East was a vital national interest of the United States and that the US would use all force to assure that its interests were maintained. Um, in the mid-1980s, President Reagan um, goes beyond geopolitical competition and describes the Cold War as an ideological war. So what was uh, trying to check the rise and spread of the Soviet Union throughout the world became ideological in nature, which changes it. Um, and he also describes the threat as very clear to the United States. Um, one, of, one of our favorite quotes is, the defense of the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, Reagan said, was, in the absence of that, Nicaragua would be a privileged sanctuary for terrorists and subversives just two days driving time from Harlingen, Texas. We will have a home away from home from Mobar Gaddafi, Arafat, and the Ayatollah. And then, of course, the final sort of depiction of US foreign policy has been the last uh, 16, 17 years, which was based upon the theory of terrorist safe havens. That anywhere in the world where there was instability, terrorists would gain hold, and they would have the ability to therefore train, plan, and conduct transnational terrorist attacks. And in an effort to assure that no terrorist group can have an unstable region, the US essentially went to war with two countries with tremendously devastating consequences, which to date have cost $4 trillion, the lives of hundreds of thousands of Afghans and uh, Iraqis, the lives of about 6,500 US service members. And it's a war that the opportunity costs to us have been tremendous. We will pay for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, how they were conducted, and how they were financed into the 23rd century. So the opportunity costs are not just recent, they're not just for your grandchildren, but they're for generations um, into the future. The final point I'll say is that not only does the sort of what we call the threat industrial complex, which is a sort of informal group of individuals who depict the world as, as dismal and gray and gloomy, um, but they always describe it as getting worse and worse and worse over time. And we have a series of quotes from generals uh, to national security advisors uh, to the directors of national intelligence who say every year that the world is becoming more threatening, more dangerous, more unstable, more volatile, and more risky to the United States. It can never get better. Under their depiction, things only get worse and worse and worse, and the past always looks better in hindsight. So we process what's called rosy retrospection bias, where we perceive, we perceive the Cold War as being stable, predictable, um, and a good era to live in, when, of course, it was a far worse time for a far greater proportion of the population, far greater threats, more famines, more genocides than sort of ever before. And so our big case in this book is that not only do we misrepresent the state of the world, but that has big consequences on how we miss uh, our interpretation of national security. We sort of 
misestimate and underestimate the far graver threats that we experience here at home. Thank you. Thanks, Micah. And I wanted to just mention something. Um, you mentioned John Mueller before, and it's a funny thing about this, that one of the um, origins of this book idea or the article idea that's based on came from, and I'm sure if you remember this, this was an event at the National uh, Studies Association conference yeah. in 2010 or 11 in New Orleans. And it was a, it was a tribute to John Mueller. Right. It, it was like an all-star team of international relations scholars. Um, Steve Walt was there, I think. Bearsheimer. It, it was a very impressive group. And everyone sort of does their, does their thing. And John Mueller gets up there and basically kind of delivers this, 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 this talk about how we overestimate threats and nothing really threatens us. And we live in a very safe country in a very safe world. And I, you know, I, obviously, I hadn't really thought much about that argument before. I said, that's a really interesting argument. I, I, kind of, I should write something about that. And, and that's kind of how this idea sort of came about. And I was talking about it. And that's kind of why we're standing here today. Um, so uh, one thing I just want to talk a little bit about here is that when, when we think about national security in general, we think about things that happen over there, that happen in foreign countries, that happen uh, in foreign governments. We don't think much about national security as being something that happens around us and that happens here in America. Um, and, and one of the things about this book that we try to do is reframe how it is we think about national security and how we think about that which threatens us and that would challenges us. Um, and this, there's sort of a precedent for this. If you go back and look at the, at the origins and the beginning of the Cold War, you had politicians um, who talked about national security being something more than just protecting America from foreign harms, but also about sort of the foundations of American power at home, of economic power, of quality of life of, of our fellow citizens. And, and, and one thing that we talk about a lot in the book, and I think it's really the most important stories out of the book, is the extent to which we have become increasingly indifferent to the challenges that we face at home and challenges that are under, undermining quality of life for all of us, um, but particularly the most vulnerable citizens in our country, um, but that also, I think, weaken our economic, the foundations of our economic power and make it more difficult for America to be a great power and a great and influential power. Um, and one thing that's interesting, we wrote this article, first wrote this article seven years ago, um, this was a part of the argument, but it wasn't the key part of the argument. And when we were asked recently to write a, to write a sort of a look back on the piece for foreign affairs, one thing that, that I sort of thought about when we thought what's different now than it was 2012 when we first wrote the piece is this story of what's happening in America. Um, and, and I'll just give you sort of the, the, the one sort of meta piece of, of data that sort of speaks to this. Last year it came out, it was, um, there was a CDC report, I believe it was, it said life expectancy in the U.S. has decreased for three consecutive years. Okay. Now, meanwhile, between 2000 and 2015, life expectancy increased by five and a half years around the globe. Five and a half years in a 15-year period. Three-year decline in the United States. And that's the, the first time that's happened in this country in 100 years since the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, and to me, that to me is, a, is, a, is a, not only a major challenge to the country, but a national security issue. Because if people are literally, we are, we are literally moving in the opposite direction from the rest of the world when it comes to basically just how long we live. Um, and what's caused this, this decreased life expectancy? I mean, for one of the, the biggest issues is one that we didn't even reference in our 2012 article, which is drug overdoses. 
It wasn't even considered a major public policy issue. It was a policy issue, obviously, but not a major public policy issue, not a crisis. And yet in 2017, more than 70,000 Americans died from a drug overdose. That is almost as many Americans as died from guns and cars combined. Okay, and this is, this, so this increase has happened in a very short period of time. And the response to it, the policy response to it, has been minimal at best. Um, and, and just to give a sense of this, you know, this isn't just a question of, of, of lives, and obviously that's, that's the most important question. But, you know, 2015 White House report estimated the cost of the opiate crisis in America was $504 billion. That's 2.8% of GDP. Um, the other big killer in America is guns. Uh, last year saw a 40-year high in gun violence in this country. 40,000 Americans die every year from gun violence, 80,000 are wounded. And the cost, again, of that is about $229 billion a year in, in cost to the economy. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, suicides have increased in America by 47% over the past 15 years. And again, I might get reference this, but around the world, suicide rates are declining. In the US, they're increasing. And one of the reasons why we have such a high suicide rate is because of the easy availability of guns. Um, most suicides do end with someone not actually dying. It's usually a cry for help, uh, maybe an uh, attempted drug overdose or, or attempted hanging, something, something of that nature. Guns, however, are very final. And so most gun suicides that are attempted end up in tragedy. And so it's one of the reasons why our suicide rate is so particularly high. Um, and then there's sort of the larger healthcare issues we never talk about. Um, the non-communicable diseases like cancers and respiratory illnesses and diabetes and cardiovascular disease that kill about 2 million Americans every single year. And all of which are relatively easily, not I shouldn't say easily, but relatively preventable. Um, the, the, the causes of these diseases are diet, uh, smoking, drinking, lack of exercise. Um, and this is something that also costs us a lot of money, $330 billion a year in, in health care costs. And the impact of this is also much more than just dollars and cents. Uh, people who have these diseases have greater levels of depression and anxiety. They're less productive at work. Their children have more higher incidence of depression and anxiety. Um, it has a cascade effect. Uh, a generational effect. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're, sort of, we're writing about in talking about the book is why we think diet is actually something that should be considered a, a national security issue, because actually is, uh, the lack of a, a poor diet that most Americans have uh, contributes significantly to these diseases and contributes significantly to healthcare costs that uh, are run in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And on that final, final point there, it's, it's sort of interesting to note that we wrote this article we had a section there about how America was the heaviest country in the world, okay, at a BC rate of 32%. So we had to update those numbers when we wrote the book, and it turns out the number is now 40% of Americans are considered obese. 25% increase in seven years. Um, that is double the average of all other OECD countries. Um, and among children, the obesity rate is about 18.5%, which is a 34% increase from 15 years ago. And in fact, two-thirds of all adults um, and 30% of children are overweight. Now, this is bad for a number of reasons. First of all, there's obvious health reasons. Um, people who are obese have higher levels of diabetes, for example, and other kinds of uh, diseases that um, shorten their lives. But also, the cost of this is, is significant. We're talking about $315 billion a year in obesity-related medical costs. And that affects all of us, by the way. 
There's all of us in healthcare costs. It affects public healthcare systems like Medicare and Medicaid. More Medicaid probably than Medicare, but it affects pretty much all of us. And all of us end up paying a price somehow because of that. Um, and it's also, again, as I mentioned before, children that are obese miss school more often. They have more, again, incidence of depression and anxiety. Obese workers are less productive. They're more absent from work. There's a huge economic productivity cost um, from this. And, 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 and that's just, I'm just, just talking about the health issues. There's also poor educational outcomes. We generally fall much further behind other countries when it comes to uh, educational metrics. We have some of the highest infant um, and maternal mortality rates in the developed world. Um, we don't have family leave for maternal, maternity leave for, uh, for parents. Um, a whole kinds of elements that other countries take for granted we don't have here. And all of those contribute to, um, to undermining our economy and undermining the foundations of American economic power. And in my view, and this is what we argue in, I say in our view, um, this is really like a national security issue because a country that is, um, A, the quality of life of the citizens is, is consistently being undermined and that is taking on huge uh, medical costs, economic costs, lost productivity, and so forth, is undermining, you know, again, its, 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 its national power. It's undermining its ability to compete economically with other countries. Um, and it's undermining its ability. Uh, um, I mean, just on the obesity issue, for example, um, you know, one of the problems with having a population that's overweight is you, it's hard to find people to serve in the military. And in fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a huge problem. In fact, the military has a hard time getting enough recruits because so many American teenagers are overweight. So there is a, there's sort of a, in ways we don't even think about, all of these issues that affect us, and affect us differently than any other country in the world, have a, have a, a, a ripple effect uh, on our economy, on, um, on government spending, um, on our productivity, on our quality of life. And you know, in our view, all of those things should be sort of factored into when we talk about national security. And again, as I said at the beginning, this is not a radical notion. Okay, you know, you go back to sort of the Eisenhower administration, you know, there was a, a real focus on, on doing things that actually improved infrastructure in this country, national highway system. It's a focus on scientific research, on um, education, um, secondary education particularly, a focus on military technology. I'm sure many of you know this story, but the reason the, the internet came out of a, a called DARPA, which was, which was created during the Eisenhower administration. Um, and if you go back and look at what pr uh, presidents have said in the past, all of them have sort of nodded to this notion that um, you know, national security, I'm quoting here from, from George H.W. Bush, who said our national security requirements must be viewed in the context of our overall national well-being. Um, and just to show you it's bipartisan, in 2010, Obama said our national strategy begins at home. Uh, what takes place on our borders has always been the source of our strength, and this is even true in age of interconnection. Those are great words. They're lovely words. That's, that unfortunately, there's very little follow-through on that idea. Um, and, and our view, and what we, we sort of argue in the book, is that what threatens us, what challenges us the most is what's happening here at home. And it doesn't mean that we should become isolationists, we should ignore what's happening around the world, but it means that we need to sort of reprioritize or, or prioritize correctly um, our resources toward what actually threatens us and not spending you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on our military, but focusing more on the challenges we face at home and addressing resources and attention toward them. And until we do that, I, I, our fear is that this will America will continue to weaken uh, as far as the productivity of its citizens, as far as the quality of our life. Um, and that has you know, major national security implications. Um, and you know, if we take sort of one lesson away from the book, it's just that 
to take to understand that we live in a, a, a moment, a world that is extraordinarily um, advanced, advanced from where from the way it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, and as Micah sort of talked about this, it's one of the things I was striking about when I tell people this, especially on social media. And I say, you know, actually, violence, wars have gone way down, and people live better lives, and poverty has gone down. It's always met with people who get angry at me when I say this. It's as if somehow I've insulted them by suggesting that things are getting better around the world. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that is, uh, why, uh, why people feel that way. But it, it is an interesting element. People sort of see it on the news, and they see all these bad stories, and they think that's what's happening around the world, not knowing that you know, diseases in our lifetime have been wiped out, polio and, and guinea worm and things like that. Um, and so it's important to sort of, I think, understand that this is happening around the world. We shouldn't look around the world and feel threatened and feel unsafe. Um, this, the story of the last 25 years is not about terrorism, it's not about mass destruction. It's really about these extraordinary advances in the human experience um, and, and that humans live much better, fuller, more productive lives than they ever have before. But it's also true that we need to think about what we're doing at home with our own citizens and, and the inattention and indifference that we are displaying toward them um, and sort of correcting the imbalance in how we think about foreign threats and how we think about threats at home. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you both. Uh, now it's my pleasure to welcome Sharon Burke to Cato. Um, Sharon is a senior advisor to, to New America, where she focuses on international security and resource security, a program that examines the intersection of security, prosperity, and natural resources. Prior to joining New America, Sharon served in the Obama administration as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy and at the State Department in the George W. Bush administration. She was a Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security. She attended Williams College and Columbia University where she was a Zuckerman and International Fellow at the School of International and Public Affairs. Sharon, welcome to Cato. Thank you, Chris. Usually my of the threat inflation complex, although I would make an observation, Micah, that anybody who works at a consulting firm that's run by a prominent general officer um, is also part of the same uh, community. So now having said that, um, I want to start, I think there's a lot of great things about this book, and I want to start in the spirit of what it asks for, which is with disclosures. Um, New America has all of its donors publicly disclosed on its website, so you can see everyone who gives us money. I went through it. I know where my money comes from personally. It comes from the Skoll Foundation, which is a, a charitable foundation started by Jeff Skoll. And most of it supports social entrepreneurship, but also some work on water and climate change issues. So that's where my money comes from. I went through all of the funders for New America, and it's almost all foundation funded. We do quite famously get some money from Google. Um, I don't, but I would be very happy to take their money if they would like to give it to me. Um, and I think there was only once we've gotten money from a, a defense company, and I, it didn't benefit me directly. So I wanted to start there because I think it's a good, it's an important point that we need that kind of transparency. Um, of course, given what I work on a lot of the time, which is climate change, I'm not unmindful of the irony of sitting in the House of Coke. And hopefully you guys have made some progress on that, uh, on that issue. Um, you guys believe in climate change yet, or is that still a problem? Sure, climate okay. change exists. Good. So um, I think this book is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And I hope that it's the beginning of a, of a shift. I hope it has, a, it has that kind of effect. 
and that it's, it's all that anyone's talking about on the campaign trail, that we're shifting, uh, that there's a shift in priorities in, in our polity and in our dialogue um, of the kind that you talk about. And I think you have some beautifully marshaled arguments in the book. It's very well researched. I think there's some clever use of statistics and I've, I've taken some notes, so I'm, that's what I'm looking at. So like at one point you mentioned that a toddler with a gun killed more Americans in 2015 than were killed in terrorist incidents. I think there's a lot of that kind of flavor in this book that's really well done. And I think there's just a great underlying philosophy that informs the whole book, um, this statement. The foundation of US power is the strength and well-being of its environment, education system, economy, and political institutions. Absolutely. And I do think we forget that as a, as a polity, as a people, that, that our military strength is derivative and it comes out of those things. And if those things are not sound, it doesn't matter what weapon systems we have. I think um, you're, you had a lot of great discussion about the importance of the rule of law. Um, and there's a great section in the book where it talks about the propagation of the cell phone and the fact that that this phenomenal growth of, you know, the smartphones were only introduced in 2017, so a little over 10 years ago, and have grown worldwide phenomenally. And that a lot of that growth was enabled by an interlocking system of laws and regulations and investment that most people, most Americans don't really see or don't really consciously know about, but they wouldn't have what they have without it. Um, I think also what's really unusual in this book is that it's not just, you're kind of walking your own walk, which is it's not just a diagnosis of all the things that are wrong. It's also offering some solutions and some ideas for how to make it right. Um, and I do like that a lot. Like I, you know, one thing that you called out in the book that I completely agree with is that, you know, a foundation like mine, an organization like mine, that's mostly foundation funded, if I want to work on something other than traditional war and peace community efforts, there's no funder for that. Like if I want to challenge the status quo and say, you know, most of the defense community is highly normative and we need a different way of looking at this, I cannot get funding to do that. There is nobody who funds that kind of work or very few people. Um, I also love the whole concept of, of, you know, we do threat briefs, of course, in the national security community, that there should be opportunity briefs. I thought that was a great idea. I would love to see it. And again, I, I hope that these are ideas that get picked up in this political moment in our country where I think we're going to have a lot of candidates for office who are looking for a different way to talk about a range of issues. And to me, war and peace and that sort of fundamental responsibility of government should be one of the things they're talking about, and they should be talking about it differently. Now, I didn't love the book unreservedly, I'm sorry. Um, a, a couple of observations. I think sometimes you guys overstate things a little bit. Like, Michael, you just pointed out that heart disease is a preventable illness, and it's smoking and drinking um, and diet, but actually the two biggest risk factors for heart disease, if I recall correctly, are being male and being over 55. And if you want to argue that's a preventable disease, <laughs> have at it. Um, so, I mean, also at one point you said, you know, in the very beginning of the book, uh, these trends make the current era of relative peace, safety, and prosperity not a momentary blip, but more likely than not, the future reality of global affairs. 
Well, I think that's a vast overstatement, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Of course, we have established that I am part of the threat inflation complex, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, occasionally, you use statistics in a way, like, as I said, you use them very cleverly and, and to um, really liven up the, the um, and, and underpin the narrative, but occasionally you also use them the other way. So, for example, at one point you say that the U.S. lags other developed countries in social mobility, and you cite Denmark. Well, Denmark, you, you know, if you have the great good fortune to be born an ethnic Dane, which 90% of the population is, then yes, social mobility is for you. That's, we're not a homogeneous country. Social mobility here is a little more complicated. So I'm not sure that's a fair um, comparison. I would say actually the flip side, again, coming back to your own approach, which is it's again an argument for what's good and special about this country, that that we can be a place where you don't have to be an ethnic American to potentially have opportunities to succeed is. here, whatever that is. <laughs> Um, it wouldn't be my people, that's for sure. Um, you know, you, you decry threat inflation, but you also kind of uh, celebrate Nixon and Reagan at some point for their deflationary achievements. But one of the things I wrote to myself in the margins in that part is, are you saying that having a certain hawkishness can actually give you the room to then deflate threats? Because both of those men were extremely hawkish before they were achieving threat deflation. So, so sometimes you're saying it's bad, and sometimes you're inherently saying, but it has its uses, right? And, and that's, you know, I was talking to my colleague Wyatt Scott about this on the way over, that, um, you know, fear is a powerful motivator, and it, and it is part of human nature, and sometimes it is a productive use. So you, you know, you point out that Eisenhower created the national highway system on the backs of the Soviet threat. Um, so sometimes fear is actually used in ways that are productive, which you do point out in your book. Um, sometimes I think you're a little too U.S.-centric, like even with the Ebola, the fearbola, as we talked about it, it wasn't just a U.S. response that was successful. It was Nigeria's response that was successful, which to me at the time came as a big surprise. I had just been in Nigeria on a government mission and was, was kind of shocked that their government could be so very competent because it's also a very corrupt government. But when, it, when the chips were down and they had something they had to do, they were more than capable of doing it. And it's their success too, not just ours. And I think in that respect, you're a little bit too negative about our own country at times. And again, would encourage you to remember to walk your own walk. You said at one point, all too rarely have US national interests included advancing the health well-being and economic opportunities of humanity, but the treaties, investments, and the rule of law that you're citing in that section right before you make that statement were either initiated by the United States or were certainly enabled by the United States. So we've been an important part of all of these advances globally. Um, I think, you know, that struck me as sort of an overstatement. And, you know, more broadly, I wonder, does this have to be a zero-sum game? Do we have to say that we're gonna focus on making things better domestically um, and not worry about threats, why can't we do both? Because I think the overcorrection and acting like the threats aren't real and there aren't really problems out there, um, I also don't agree with, but, I, but why can't we do both? Why can't we pay attention to things that might endanger our interests and our safety and also pay more attention to what's good at home? And I would point out also that I think you're hanging a lot of freight on the defense budget and the defense world as the origin of all the problems. But if you look at the US national budget, that's not where our money is, right? 60% of the US budget is in people. 
It's in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Um, and a lot of it's in servicing the debt, right? So the defense portion of that is actually relatively small to those expenses. Nonetheless, I think the amount of money that we spent on war in the last 20 years and the results for it has not been a good cost benefit. And I think uh, your calling attention to that in such straightforward prose is a really important piece of the book and that I really appreciate it. And it's hard to read having been a part of it, of course. But in fact, I, I have, so I agree with so much of the book, but with a slightly different spin. I describe sometimes what the US military um, in, our, in our governance structure is sort of like Dutch disease, which is, you know, I'm a, a natural resource person, so that's kind of where I come from things. Dutch disease is this phenomenon that was first observed in the Netherlands when they had a lot of oil, which is if you have a highly valuable commodity like that, it tends to hollow out the rest of your economy so that, because nothing else can compete with having such a valuable economy. And there's long-term consequences for that, particularly for a place like the Netherlands that didn't have the extensive resources. We have sort of governance Dutch disease, which we are so relatively over-invested in our military um, as, a, as a, the way that we govern and so hyper-focused on it that it has withered sort of the rest of our capacity to govern, particularly in the world. Um, and I think that's not what we need. Um, especially not now, not ever, but especially not now, and for two main reasons. We first of all, so I, I mean, I do think that there are threats in the world, that Russia still has 4,000 nuclear warheads, uh, significant amounts of chemical and biological agent, and a lot of nefarious intents. They've shown they will use these things, um, including, you know, uh, attacking within other people's countries with chemical weapons, um, with radiological weapons, I still think they're a threat. I still think China is a threat. They have legitimate aspirations, for sure, but they also don't think that, that they, do, they do think that's a zero-sum game. And I don't want to see us lose for them to win. Um, and Iran and North Korea, for that matter, are pretty inimical uh, regimes in their regions. Um, they are not constructive players on the world scene. But on the other hand, so if we define these as threats and we really gear up our military, which is very much what we're doing right now, right? The national defense strategy, all about great power competition. If we really do that, where does that end? If that's all that we do, are we really gonna get in a shooting war with China and a shooting war with Russia? Do we really want Iran or North Korea to collapse? Do we want to occupy them? Tell me how that ends, how any of that ends do, you know, if all we have is war, then we're going to end up in World War III, and that will not be in anybody's interests. So what are we developing on the other side of this, and who's thinking about that? How do we build an alternative to war? I think we need to hedge our bets on the threat side, but God help us if we don't come up with some other counterbalancing kind of um, plan and strategy to not be at war with these places. And we're not doing that right now. And not only that, we are draining the capacity out of all of our government, all of our ability to actually do that. Um, the, other, the other second area that I think is important is that I also don't think that these challenges are necessarily the biggest ones we face. Um, and, and you guys do give kind of short shrift to some of the other challenges. Like climate change is, I think, a second to last paragraph in the whole book. Um, so that's kind of my core critique. Um, but 
actually, the number one thing that I would observe about the book is I don't think your time series, your trend line is long enough. Like, I don't think saying that the last 30 years of progress or even the last 70 years without a great power hot war um, indicate this great arc of human progress that's permanent. Um, when you look out, you know, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Humans are showed up about, that we would recognize about 200,000 years ago. Settled society is about 6,000 years ago. Um, in, when you look, you know, war, conflict, organized violence is part of human nature. It always has been. And when you look at that longer timeline, is this actually a permanent trend or is this part of a cycle? Is it a blip? Is it an outlier? I mean, you may be right. This may be a permanent state of achievement and progress, but 6,000 years of settled human history before this suggest otherwise. Um, and not only that, I found some great graphs, which I won't, I think uh, we need to get into the back and forth, but I was looking at our data uh, world, which is a great site, and about sort of the global deaths and conflicts since 1400. And I just think when you look at a longer timeline, the frequency of war and the lethality of war and the availability of those lethal means being you know, more pervasive, those are real problems. That's not just the threat inflation. So I, I mean, I like that things are better, but I also wonder if your timeline isn't a little too short. Um, but from the way Michael is nodding, I think he's ready for that argument. Um, more broadly on the natural resource side that, that we look a lot at, again, it's only since 1800. Look, if you look at the global population, it was not moving for a really long time. And then right around 1800, the line starts to go straight up, right? With the Industrial Revolution, humanity started to bloom. And we went from, in 1800, about a billion people to 7 billion people today. And we're headed for 10 billion people by the middle of the century. Um, it's an unprecedented time, again, in human history. There's nothing like this, nothing like this ever. And we're starting to see the consequences. So, you know, we got a green revolution in the 1970s that saved millions of people from starvation, but it depended on heavy use of water and of chemical fertilizers and of pesticides. We're generating a lot of pollution. There's climate change. The oceans are acidifying and warming. Now, this may sound like the threat inflation as well, but these are observed empirical changes that are happening, and we're in an unprecedented time as far as the number of people on the Earth and what we're taking out of the Earth. It, we're a very inventive and adaptive species. Maybe we'll just keep adapting, but there are signs that that's not going to be the case going forward, or at least we need to have a solid appreciation for what we need to adapt to and change and accept that there may be some limits to the way we're living for the number of people that are on the earth. And your book doesn't really deal with that. And again, it's full circle to what my real concern is. That, I think, is the real challenge for humanity. And again, this country, we are not at all organized well to deal with that kind of security challenge. We have a very narrow focus on war fighting. And again, you know, I really hope that's not where we end up. But this other kind of challenge, which is what we really need to address, where we need to put our adaptability and inventiveness, where we need to put our investment, it's not what we're geared up to deal with. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we might have to accept that our best security investment is not in 
hypersonic missiles, but in maternal health and girls' education. Um, we need to get to a point where we as a country can think about it that way. Thank you. All right, so thank you for that. I'm going to give uh, Michael and Micah a chance to respond, but uh, actually, why don't we do that first? Let, uh, is there anything in particular you want to pick up on? I, I might exercise my moderator's privilege to take the first question, but is there anything that you wanted to respond to uh, from what Sharon said? Sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, those are really great observations. And in fact, some of the uh, critiques are ones that I've actually thought about myself a little bit. So I, I sort of found myself nodding along maybe, maybe a little too vigorously to some of them. Um, a couple of things I think just, it's interesting. At one point, because that, that, this actually sort of gets to something that I sort of Wish I'd talk more. We should talk more about in the book. You mentioned about social mobility, and um, it is true. That one of the advantages that America we have is that we're not a homogenous society. Um, but one of the points that I, again I say we could have addressed more in the book is that um, that is true in this country. But it does matter a lot about what what skin color you are, what what race you are, what gender you are, as far as how likely you are to succeed. And the reality is that, that if you are a person of color in this country, you're much more less likely to succeed than you're if a a white person. And so I think that, that that's one of the things that affects this question of social mobility somewhat also. I think what's made the, this question of this issue more um, visceral for a lot of people is that the, the challenges in, in rising up the economic ladder are not just ones that are being, uh, that affect African Americans and Hispanic Americans and, and ethnic, uh, members of various ethnic groups, but also white Americans. Um, and I think one of the things that actually happened the last couple of years, I think has led to more focus on this, is that what Americans have seen, their, their efforts at social mobility um, consistently been, um, it's been much, much harder, I should say, to rise up the economic, the economic ladder than it was maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, the thing I want to say also, this thing about being fear, being productive, I mean, one of the things that I actually worry about when we talk about the book sometimes is that maybe I'm being too fearful in talking about the problems we face at home. Maybe I'm I'm part. Maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about guns and drugs and and, and the issues. And, and if I'm if I take it from a global larger standpoint, I could also realize a lot of good things about America. A lot of great things that we that we have here. And so there is an inclination, I think, sometimes to sort of to sort of focus on it's um, the the bad news because it's a way to sort of get attention to the issue you're talking about. And it's interesting when I've been talking about the book that I find myself doing that sometimes and sort of becoming part of the the, the problem of hoping to solve. Um, the last thing is, I guess, on climate change. I mean, this is one thing where, you know, it, it's hard to talk about climate change and it's hard in the context of this book because it, is, it, it very much goes against some of the key arguments in the book. Um, because we're sort of, we make this case that, you know, human experience, human life, um, quality of life has improved dramatically. But we also have to sort of recognize the fact, and we sort of, we do, we do mention, reference this in the book, but that climate change can undo a lot of that progress. And that's just a reality um, that we have to accept, that, that a lot of things that have, that, have, that have improved and a lot of things that have gotten better can, can go in the other direction. We also sort of recognize this, too, and I think it's something that we, we try to be very cognizant of, of, of understanding, of, of making this point, that just because things have gotten better doesn't mean things are going to stay that way. Um, one of the things we argue for in the book is that, that we should recognize how good, how much things have improved. Once we recognize that, then we should think about how do we actually make sure that those changes remain and we don't step backwards. So we've made great improvements over the last 25 years in, um, in democracy promotion, adherence to the rule of law. And in the last couple of years, we've stepped back on that. And when we have an administration that, that pays no attention to this issue, that um, curries favor with authoritarian leaders who are you know, anti-democratic, that makes that problem worse. Um, and so 
I think part of the issue here is, is acknowledging that, you know, that, that these advances have occurred and how do we enshrine these advances in the national system? How do we make sure they continue? And I think what's happened in the last two years is we've moved in the opposite direction. We've done things that, 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 that risk undercutting the advances that we've made. Um, and you know, I think it's also true that we think that we have to recognize that things can fall apart. And I mean, I, I guess I'm a little more optimistic um, when it comes to things like violence, things like democracy, that, that the trend lines have been moving us in a certain direction for the last 20, 30 years. There's lots of reasons to think that they will continue to move in that direction, the things that are not going to get worse or, or demonstrably worse. But things can certainly not, begin, not continue to move forward. And in certain, certain situations, certain places, they can, we can see steps back. And I think that we have to be cognizant of the fact that, that just because this progress has been made, that there's no guarantee it continues into the future. Um, and I think if there's one thing we, we want to point I want to make in the book is there's lots of reasons for optimism, but we shouldn't rest on our laurels because there's lots of reasons why this could, why this could fall apart. Um, and, you know, Sharon is right that when we look about the de decrease in violence, there's lots of reasons why I think that that's likely to continue. Um, but she's right. Human nature is human nature and has been for a very long time. And we were, and you could argue, as Steven Pinker has it, that human nature has changed and people are just less violent in general. I find that argument compelling, but you know it's it's um it's kind of hard to prove it. <laughs> um, so, I just I guess the thing I'd say is just that, that I think all of our points are things you said are absolutely correct, Sharon. And I just think that that it's important. I hope that the the lesson taken from the, our book, I hope, is not things have gotten great. It's going to stay that way. It's more that things have gotten great, but we should think about how do we continue that, because the, because unless there's a, an effort by policymakers in this country and around the world to continue those policies, then I don't know that the progress will continue. Thanks. Uh, okay, so I want to pick up on one point that, that both of you sort of sort of sensed, because my sense, Michael, is that Michael, and you in particular, in your remarks, is that you're not being optimistic enough, right? That you are, and and that we know that fear is uh, there's a certain instrumental use of fear to mobilize support for public policies that that a, a, complacent, a complacent or less fearful public would not support. Now, of course, I'm a historian of the Cold War, and I know the occasions, the multiple occasions in American history where uh, US public officials scared the hell out of the American people to mobilize support for the war. And I do wonder, I worry that you may be doing that a bit too much uh, in the sense, and again, you, sort of, you already sort of anticipated that, so I'll just, I'll just set that to one side. Um, I do want to point out the use of statistics is I find it to be quite refreshing, and not just because, I mean, you cited my colleague Alex Naross's research, for example, on the likelihood of being killed by a refugee terrorist is right. one in 3.6 uh, 3 billion. Uh, your chance of being hit by lightning twice is something like one in a million. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I do think that those kinds of statistics are useful, and I think they establish the context that Micah was talking about, but it is precisely because you, it requires a little bit more work, right, for a journalist to sort of do that. Yes. And, it, and so what I'm saying is simply this, that we need to make it costly for people to engage in threat inflation. And we, meet, we need to incentivize people to contextualize the, the situation that we're in. There are real costs to threat inflation. Uh, the one that I particularly sort of liked, or, or I, I shouldn't say liked because it was pretty horrifying, is the Fearbola uh, epidemic. The Fearbola was the epidemic, not the <laughs> Ebola. The Fearbola was the epidemic. Um, 
This was the uh, incident back in uh, 2014. Uh, a, uh, a nurse in Texas fell ill from the Ebola virus. Uh, by October of that year, 45% of panicked Americans expressed concern that they or a member of their family would contract the virus. Um, in reality, uh, there were four cases of Ebola in the United States, and only one resulted in death. However, uh, while only one resulted in death, here, were among, here are some of the things that various policymakers around the country engaged in to protect us from that supposedly grave threat. A Texas Community College sent rejection letters to applicants from Nigeria because that country had a handful of cases. An elementary school teacher from Maine was forced into 21 days of quarantine because she stayed at a hotel located 10 miles from the Dallas hospital where the aforementioned librarian died. Uh, in, here's one other. In Mississippi, parents of middle schoolers kept their kids out of a class when they found out the principal had recently traveled to Zambia for a funeral. Zambia is approximately 2,000 miles from West Africa, about as far as Mississippi is from Peru. Okay? So now, that is precisely the response that I was hoping for. You all laughed, right? It is laughable. But we need to reaffirm that principle, and that requires us to contextualize these dangers, right? In order for us to laugh at that kind of fear-mongering, we need to understand the statistics. And so while I agree with, that Sharon, with Sharon that sometimes these statistics can be, you know, sort of, it, it, they can be misused, I do believe that in their totality, the statistics paint the picture that we should be painting, which is that this world is a lot better place across the board. I think, I think much more so than, um, than you two say. All right, so do you want to? I was just going to say, I mean, don't laugh too loud. Thousands of people died in miserably yes, 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 in right. Africa. And again, they, they it, It's out, actually a yes. real, I mean, right. it and was they, a real catastrophe. And they point out that one of the great, thousands of people. and they point out that one of the great achievements that was missed in the United States was the, was the fact that that, that uh, epidemic was contained and ultimately brought down right. despite our hysteria here in the United States. Okay, so we have, um, I can't see the clock now. Okay, there we go. I guess I could look at my watch, um, <laughs> my Mickey Mouse watch. Um, all right, uh, we now have time for questions. Please uh, uh, wait for uh, the microphone for the benefit of those watching online. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. I will remind you also that the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means phrase your question in the form of a question. <laughs> should be a, there should be that telltale question mark sound at the end of your question, and then we'll know that it's a question. Uh, who uh, is up first? Here in the front. <laughs> <laughs> and do it in five minutes. That was a question. Uh, <clears throat> um, you first, yeah. I'll, I'll just, um, I was very fortunate to spend some time last week at uh, Newport and Naval War College where they think about China obsessively. Um, and it's very interesting to talk to war fighters whose job is to prepare <coughs> for a war with China because 
um, you know, I perceive China as a country, as a rising power which is pursuing interests in its region and globally. Um, to not do that would be an aberration in world history. Countries with global interests um, seek to secure those through diplomacy, through economic power, and through uh, potentially the use of military tools. What's, what's notable to me is that we perceive China's global role as being a threat to America. And America has basically placed its interests over the entirety of the globe. So China is doing a much smaller degree of power projection and I would say global interest projection compared to America. So because of how we have constructed America's global interests, China is now a threat. Um, what's interesting to me though is that if you really want to um, counter China's threat, most of what the military does is through shows of force, deployments of forces, um, war games, and, and, the and, and the equivalent. And at the War College, they have all of these are called Freedom of Naval Operations, FANOPs. These are the close sailing of warships through the Taiwan Straits, 12.1 nautical miles just in international waters off the coast of China. Um, and they've been doing these for years and years, and they have zero impact. <laughs> they they, nobody in China is perceived these as threatening whatsoever. They don't reassure, I mean, I, I spent, there were 70 Japanese naval officers there, and like not, the Japanese don't perceive this as helpful to their alliance. Um, and we literally go through this exercise because it is the tool that we have chosen to deploy to counter China. And it's not working um, because what China's really scared about is America's national power, which is primarily domestically based. Um, it's America's allies and America's partnerships in the regions where they have concerns. And those partnerships and those allies, they do have a military element, but a lot of it is just, you know, Jonai's soft power, economic cooperation, political cooperation. Um, but we perceive it through the lens, I think, through military tools, troop deployments, shows of force, because um, that's what we have to bring to the table. Yeah, I want to add to that. You know, it's always. You're going to answer the other three, right? The other, the other uh, I, will, three. I will attempt to. Uh, so, on that point, I mean, pulling out of the TPP was. Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was was maybe the worst thing we could have done as far as dealing with Chinese power, and and if, if the idea was to at least contain China's power in, in the in the Far East, that by pulling out of it was in the opposite direction. But I'm always struck by with debates about China. I mean, the U.S. military can literally operate pretty much anywhere it wants to in the globe. I mean, and operate without any real with real impunity. I mean, that no country can really confront it. Um, the, the one exception, I guess, would be the small part area out, off of China's coast, you know, near Taiwan, basically where we, we have a little more of a challenge from the Chinese uh, Navy and Chinese military. And that's how we sort of perceive the Chinese threat, because that one area, we can't really, we, we, we don't have access to that one area. And I think it's a, it's, it speaks to how broadly we define American interests and how broadly we define them in a way uh, militarily. Um, and, I, you know, I would sort of argue that, that the Chinese military threat to us is, is negligible. And the Chinese threat in the region is pretty minimal as well. And there are plenty of, of easy, uh, not, I would say actually relative, not easy is too strong of a word, but there are plenty of diplomatic tools in our toolbox in order to contain China that we haven't been utilizing. But to your, to your question about North Korea and, and Iran, I mean, so I, I was struck by the, on North Korea um, that I guess last year before the love affair began between the president and North Korea's leader, um, that people talked about the threat of nuclear war with, with North Korea because North Korea has nuclear bombs. And I, I always sort of, when I hear this, I always kind of want to say to people, you do know that the Cold War happened, right? 
And you do know that there was like hundreds of, not well, tens of thousands of nuclear thousands, weapons of pointed at, at, at both the United States and Soviet Union, and we did not go to war. And that North Korea has maybe 15 bombs? 20. 20. Yeah. Maybe a missile that can hit the U.S. We have, how many of these days do we have? Thousands. 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 And that North Korea, if they were to fire a missile at the United States, would basically disappear from the face of the earth. Their regime would be no more. You know, we tend to, tend to glom on to these sort of black swan scenarios when it comes to foreign threats. That North Korea gets a bomb, which means immediately Portland or San Francisco or Los Angeles is now at risk of a nuclear bomb, a nuclear explosion. And, and not remembering that we have plenty of experience in containing nuclear powers and plenty of effective tools that we have utilized successfully for decades in containing nuclear powers. And so is it good that North Korea has a nuclear bomb? No, it's not a great thing. You don't want nuclear Nuclear proliferation is a bad thing in general, and you know it, it, there's always the risk of of of, of, a, of war. There's a risk of a nuclear exchange, but you know there's there's ways that we can deal with that threat, short of of invading that country and attacking them militarily. Same goes for Iran having a nuclear weapon, although Iran doesn't even have a nuclear weapon program right now. Um, I guess the thing I'd say is that you know none of these to me are threats to the United States directly. They are. I suppose it threatened some U.S. interests in the region, in, in the Middle East, and, and, and the Far East. But there are plenty of ways that we can contain those threats if we simply use the tools that we've used for decades to contain uh, threats to the United States. And, you know, it's one thing I'll just say about, about you talked about fear as, a, as an effective tool. You know, after 9-11, you know, there were plenty of ways to talk about the threat of terrorism and, and, and to, to, to raise public, you know, um, focus on the threat from, from Al-Qaeda that were much less invasive than actual invasion of Iraq. <laughs> so we talk about this in the book. We, we spent $97 million in, 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 in um, uh, money for uh, cockpit security, which basically meant replacing the doors on, on airplanes, domestic airplanes, uh, replacing them with, with tougher doors that were bulletproof that you couldn't break into. And in my view, and actually I should say our view, that pretty much did more to stop a 9-11-style attack than anything we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Our point being that there's, you can talk about threat from terrorism, but you don't have to, to go to the maximalist approach in how you deal with that. There are plenty of ways to deal with terrorism and, and, and things that we did that were very effective, by the way, that things like you did at home with intelligence sharing, uh, with cockpit security. I mean, I would actually argue with, uh, you know, taking out uh, al-Qaeda leaders and al-Qaeda uh, operatives that all of those were effective, and, and you can do this with a smaller footprint than invasion occupation of Iraq or Afghanistan that ends up costing you know, trillions of dollars, which is literally what the, the cost of it's been. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, sir. Right there. And I can follow up while, on while, a couple yeah, of those Sharon, while we're too. waiting on the mic, go ahead, Michelle. Yeah, just uh, the first thing I would say is a freedom of navigation operation is not necessarily a, meant to be an aggressive attack on China. It's, it's to um, reinforce that these are areas that we don't recognize territorial claims to and that they're part of the global commons. And that by sailing through them, we're not necessarily waiting for China to lay down its arms and throw doves at us. We're reinforcing that we have the right to go through those areas. And by going through them, you're creating an international precedent and law. Those are not the only places we do them. We do them in the Arctic. You know, um, we don't recognize Canada's claim as the Northwest Passage as 
part of an internal waterway. So they're more to set a precedent in international law to protect access to the global commons. Um, so I'd, I'd, I wouldn't characterize them that way, Micah. And also the DPRK, I, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite threat inflation things, I, I do a lot of work on electricity, and there's a lot of really interesting grid uh, threat hype there that we can talk about if you want to, that, including that involves North Korea. But I think the big threat of, the, of North Korea is not to the United States, but to South Korea. Yes. So uh, that's a little harder to dismiss. Presumably, the, I agree with that. Presumably, the right the right to to passage in in international waters would also apply to the Chinese. So if the Chinese were to sure. conduct phone ops twelve miles within, they within, have right, in the Bering exactly, Straits. Right, exactly. And, yes. Yeah. All right, John. Yeah, John Gay, John Quincy Adams Society. So I'm curious. You you have a theory of what threat inflation is, it seems, and an account of how there's all this safety. But do you have a theory of where the safety is coming from? What is causing the safety? And therefore, how can we select policies that affect it? Because some people would say, uh, you know, for, for example, strategic primacists would say, well, the safety has come from this expansive, highly securitized international role that we have. So how would you respond to that? Um, so, I mean, in the book, we talk a lot about how um, sort of the international system and, and adherence to sort of international norms has helped, has, has had enormous impact, at least, on, on increasing international security. And so one thing, one example that we cite when it comes to sort of the decrease in war is the decision after the Iraq invasion of Kuwait in 1990 to, to roll back that invasion, um, which you know, you can look at it from lots of different perspectives, but in, 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 a, in a key respect, um, was focused on upholding this sort of global norm that you can't really, you can no longer, or I guess no longer, I suppose, the case, or you couldn't anymore uh, invade and occupy your neighbors. Um, and of course, that happened during during the Cold War, and, and there's a little, you know, Afghanistan, for example, not much that we could do about that, but in, in Iraq, there was something the national community could do, and they did. And, you know, I, I think upholding those kind of norms and upholding the, the idea that there's certain, that if you engage some kind of behavior that goes against international, uh, law that goes against certain national norms, that there'll be a punishment for it, it has a, a deterrent effect. And so I do think that, that the, the, the level of consensus that, there do, that exists now in the national community um, when it comes to on issues of war, on issues of uh, uh, democracy, and issues of human rights, um, has, an, has a, very, a, a very positive effect. And one of the things that concerns us is what's happening now. You have a president who is much less focused on, uh, or even understands, why the international system, why it exists, and what it does, and how it how it um, has an important, you know, sort of normative effect on on decreasing violence and keeping the world more more peaceful and secure. And I, I think that when you weaken those norms, um, and when you you know don't um, uh, criticize or certain or or even reference human rights abuses by authoritarian leaders, as this president has done repeatedly, um, that it just encourages that kind of behavior. And I think that that's one of the things that that I think undermines. I think a lot of what's what's happened in the last 20, 25 years is, is a, a much greater global consensus around a host of international issues that I think benefit the United States, benefit national peace and security. Um, and one of the things we talk, in the book we talk about is that if you if you sort of get away from that idea of maintaining those global norms, of that global consensus, then you know you have more outliers. You have more countries that are going to want to op operate outside the international system, and that is increasingly what's happening. But Michael, the, the violation of these norms occurred long before Donald Trump. That's I mean, true. we violated norms of sovereignty in Bosnia and, and Kosovo. Absolutely, we violated we norms violate of sovereignty in Iraq as much as anybody else does. Actually, we violated norms of sovereignty in Syria and, Iraq, and Libya. So, I mean, 
So if it is true that the United States is what, what these norms, and you talk about this in the book, you bring this up in the book, that it is hard for the United States sure. to affirm these principles when others violate them, sure. when all they have to do is point at what we've been doing. Right? Did you want to say that, Mike? Well, um, every great power makes universalist claims <laughs> and then carves out exceptions for themselves. Exactly. Right. Right. And the United exactly. States is no different. But I was just going to say that if I had to identify the three greatest causes for the trends that we describe in the book, it's the International Telecommunications Union, which predates America's role in the world. It's the most important, I would say, powerful global organization. It's that. market access, and it's um, basically providing evidence-based cases for human development on global public health, on the economic aid, uh, we now have a better sense of what works for development. And I would say every form of disease eradication, uh, education, literacy than we ever had before. Like, we know what works. We literally didn't know what worked even a short time ago. I, I think that military power and security is part of, is an element of our national power that has brought us the safety that we have. But it's not the only element, and it needs to be in balance with our other investments and our and our other exercises of, of of international power. And we've gotten increasingly out of balance, and we haven't always used our military power. I think there's a there's a, a faith on both sides, uh, both ends of the spectrum, that the use of force it brings you achievements and gets you what you want. But Contrary war to all is evidence. always right. messy, yes. right? right? It's never predictable. It's always messy. It always consumes and it always destroys. You do it if you have to, and it's the only option you have. But to have this faith that it's going to somehow fix things has been, I think, a, an interesting twist in both parties on both ends of the spectrum. This is one of my favorite stories about from the Obama administration. So it was in 2013 or 2014, I believe it was, when Assad used chemical weapons in Syria, right? And and this crossed Obama's mythical red line, right? So he debated the use of military force. And then, uh, of course, as everyone knows, he decided not to do that, and instead struck this deal with the, which the Russian government brokered to get Syria to turn over all its chemical weapons, which was an extraordinary accomplishment, actually, and which was ultimately what you wanted to accomplish. You wanted to get rid of Syria's chemical weapons. That, that was the goal, right? So the idea was if we use force to bomb them, that's one way to do it. Imperfect, doesn't really work. I mean, there's no way to verify it. Or we get a national organization that we supported for, you know, for decades to go in and do it for us, and that's what happened. And yet, I'm sure all of you remember this, the criticism of Obama was that he didn't uh, uphold the red line, that he should have used force because he said he was going to and then he didn't, and this showed weakness. As opposed to, he used force, military threat, as a coercive threat against Syria, which, which brought a much better outcome. And it's a weird sort of phenomenon that we sort of think of, we think of, of, of use of military force as almost like, as like a, a presentation weapon, like as a way to sort of, you know, to. to flex our muscles and to flag wave about look how tough and powerful we are, irrespective of does this actually get us anything and accomplish any of our national security objectives. Although I would point out that Syria didn't actually turn over all Well, no, I mean, they did turn over their most, their, most of their chemical yes. weapons. Yeah, I mean, the one... Third which, agent was the one they most... I'll just the add most to that. I think Libya is a good example, too, the, that the, we expected the use of force to be the end of the conversation, and it wasn't. Right. I'll, I'll add to that. The United States spent $900 billion verifying the denuclearization of Iraq. <laughs> and right now, the cost of all IAEA inspections in Iran, which has prevented Iran from, um, unless they're doing it covertly, um, resuscitating its nuclear weapons program, the annual cost 
for the entire IAEA inspector force is $11 million a year. The U.S. pays $3 million a year for that. Yeah. They have in their book that when you have a really big hammer, everything looks like a nail. I, I know someone else has used that line. So, uh, yes, sir, <laughs> right there on the, on the aisle. And then, Thank uh, you, guys. Jack Warner, Climate Institute. Um, I think you guys kind of sort of took away some of the impact of your book by trying to bring in examples like cancer and, you know, other kind of so-called health threats and stuff. And, and instead of really, you know, doing a real good comparison to air, water, and land pollution, which causes cancer, which causes climate change. And so look at the two big pictures. So, I mean, it's good to focus on military and, and security in your book. But I think you kind of lost a lot of what you were trying to focus on by trying to throw in these other examples. So my question is, are the three of you, either one of you, willing to take on another book and really do something <laughs> you know? No. No. <laughs> you know, air, water, land pollution versus military as it relates to the safety of our country and of our world. Yeah. Michael and Micah were, resent, were, were reluctant to embrace yet another co-writing project. Is <laughs> there the Abbott and Costello or the, you know, something. How about you, Sharon? Are you going to write this book? Yes. Yeah, see, there right, you go. That's, that's a, but, you heard it here first, people. Two things I want to say about that. Again, why does it have to be either or? Why can't we have, you know, security that's both? Why do we have to say, well, if we're going to do, if we're going to take care of our water, then we're just going to have to get rid of our military. I, we got to have all of it. But one thing I wanted to go back to on climate change is that, you know, you said, Michael, that climate change kind of goes against the arguments of the book. But I don't know if I made the point that I really wanted to make about how steep population growth is. Climate change doesn't, isn't risking undoing that progress. It's a consequence of that progress. Sure, that too. Sure. So yeah. I just wanted to make that Can point. I just address your, because you've raised it a couple of times, why we can't have it all? And the reason is we can't have it all. <laughs> <clears throat> there is a finite amount of political attention and resources that we marshal. I mean, it's really a fight. As you pointed out, all uh, uh, discretionary spending is a small part of the total federal budget, $4.75 trillion. We're really having a conversation today about $1.6 trillion of that total. Um, and of that 1.6 trillion, about 55% will go to national security, which means foreign-related national security, which unfortunately leaves very little for the th issues we talk about. Right. And 2,700 U.S. citizens died on 9/11, and we spent four trillion dollars to prevent that from happening again. Over 250,000 citizens have died of drug overdoses in the last five or six years because of the rapid, rapid growth, and we're spending less than 10 to 15 billion total on preventing drug deaths. Um, so I think we should have a global role. We should be forward engaged. We should have allies and partners. Um, but given just that there is a, a finite number of resources we can commit to it, um, I think it's a question of where do you balance what goes where. But are you saying we shouldn't spend money on defense or we shouldn't spend it on stupid stuff? We shouldn't sit on stupid stuff. Yeah. Yes. For the record, just for the, you all are going to buy the book and read it, but just for the record, Michael and Micah do not call for the abolition of the United States we do military. Not. We okay. Do I want to clarify that yes. they do not call for that. In fact, I will point out they make some very specific, and I think very wise because I made them too, very wise <laughs> recommendations for how to reduce the size of the ground forces and to do it in a very particular way, which is to move more of those forces into the reserve and the guard units, which is exactly what I think is the right approach. Um, but this is the point. 
I, and I, I have to agree completely with Micah. There is a finite pool of resources, and, and those resources are driven by a finite amount of political will to deal with the finite resources that we are willing to apply to these problems. So while it is true that one-third, less than one-third of the budget that we talk about is discretionary in nature, right. the fact is that the other two-thirds are discretionary too, except we don't treat them that way. We could, we could redefine what eligibility rules apply to Social Security and Medicare, for example, and that would bend the cost curve down. They are not, they are in fact discretionary at some level, but we choose not to talk about them. And by the way, in terms of the debt, the, the, the total debt that we typically talk about in terms of publicly held debt is roughly one-sixth to one-seventh the actual debt, which is the promises made to future generations based on the current amount of spending applied to them. Uh, I'm off my hobby horse there. Yes, Greg. Yeah, I mean, why would, we, why would we say we have to cut our defense budget, although admittedly the top line is an arbitrary number, instead of what you just said, means right. testing. Why? Right. The eligibility why does it right. have to be defense? You know, why is that the thing that we need to cut? Right. That's an excellent question, but I don't know the, Which and the answer is because politically, grasp, because politically, right? there is there appears to be very very little political well, will I mean, for addressing those problems. I mean, I guess if I want to make this a very provocative debate, I would say we should be increasing the amount of money we spend on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. But that's maybe a conversation for another 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 venue. <laughs> Greg, that would be a conversation for another venue. <laughs> DSAS, the early example, I think approximately 100% of my funding comes from military or military-related industries. Um, and he's a good guy nonetheless. <laughs> I, will, I will vouch for him. So if your recommendations on defense were taken, do you think that European allies, other democracies, those who share our values, would need to step up on some areas? Are they under-focused? Or do you think their present level of spending um, investment and attention to these issues is about right. I mean, to, to quote um, President Eisenhower, I mean, the, Europe, as all allies, do an excellent job of taking advantage of the military protection that the U.S. provides. Um, to do otherwise would be stupid, right? I mean, if a distant third power was going to assure my security through deployments, through shows of force, uh, through, I mean, we keep nuclear weapons in six NATO countries, um, it's to their advantage to spend to the level, to the least level they can. They should spend to the very minimum level they can to still assure that the U.S. will support them. Um, so I, I, I think uh, um, every country basically protects itself to the extent that they can, and Europe is no different. What's quite interesting is, though, if you look at the primary threats that Europe and the United States and many countries face, actual, like, security threats, I mean, cyber, which is where I spend a lot of time, is overwhelmingly uh, the number one concern. You saw Secretary DHS Secretary Nielsen say this recently. It's not the southern border. It's not anything else. It's cyber. The total Department of Defense and U.S. government budget for cyber is less than 3% of, uh, of its military funding. In Western Europe, it's even less. So the thing that we claim threatens us the most, we actually give very little resources to. Um, same with space. Space is just like another 1.5%. So... Um, I, and that's sort of the great point of it's not just total spending, it's spending on stupid stuff, right? And if you want to get into nitty details about where I would uh, take away defense spending, I'm happy to do that at great, great length. <laughs> um, but I think that would put people to sleep. 
Just right, a, uh, go a ahead, point sir. there, Last question Micah. Right there, no. Cyber is not a threat. The people that are using it <laughs> to attack are a threat. Oh, I, I, I should go a step further. The way that we react to the yeah. cyber is, I mean, if you look at what happened with the Russia interference in the election, it wasn't what Russia did. It's how we reacted to it that was the real, the real the damage. Agreed. There. Is often the case. Yes, sir, you have the last question. Make it a good one. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I bought the first book, I was told. No, I got the first, last question. I've right, excellent. both sides. Uh, my name is Peter Waldheim. I'm here just as an individual. Um, I very much enjoyed the, the talk. I'm, I'm sure I'll enjoy the, the book. Um, however, I, I find that I've, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on some of the domestic affairs issues. I don't on, on some of the national security issues and, and the armed you know, defense issues. So my question is, um, yes, it's, it's one thing to use you know, the number of people that have been killed by falling refrigerators or slipped in the bathtub versus the number of people killed by a toddler, uh, a terrorist toddler, I guess. Um, well, all toddlers are terrorists. Right. But uh, there's no question that there have been both uh, state and non-state actors who are spending enormous resources and enormous efforts to gain nuclear weapons and to, you know, to, to attack the United States in far larger ways that could cause tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths, not just a, a couple of thousand. And I'm not sure that, my question, I guess, is, aren't you overlooking that in your statistical bombardment? I, I spent many years dealing with uh, fissile material security and nuclear terrorism. Um, and the good news is that actually the threats that America, that I always say the most threatening time for anyone to live on Earth was basically in the late 1990s because that was when the most um, unsecure fissile material, which was unaccounted for, unsecured, um, was spread across basically 16 time zones throughout the former Soviet Union existed. Um, as a result of bipartisan, non-Luger, Bush, Obama administration efforts, more of the existing nuclear weapons explosive material on Earth is secured, accounted for, and protected. And so I would say, actually, the nuclear threats to the United States are significantly lower than they were in the late 1990s when the threat of nuclear terrorism was, was actually a really big deal because the former Soviet Union countries simply did not secure their material. And can I just add, you know, take, take an issue. Look, I don't, wanna, I don't mean to minimize um, the issue of nuclear weapons or of a country like Iran, for example, getting a nuclear weapon. I mean, I've had a lot of arguments with people uh, on uh, foreign policy folks where I basically say, look, I mean, Iran getting a bomb is, is bad for the region. It's destabilizing. It could, it could lead to a, a likely, but could lead to nuclear exchange, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, mainly to do with miscommunication, misperceptions. But um, I, I don't want to minimize that. But my response would be, there's a lot, there's, we have a very effective tool for dealing with that. And in fact, it's, we had an effective tool. It was called the Iran nuclear deal. That's right. That was a phenomenal piece of diplomacy that limited Iran's ability to produce a nuclear weapon that had extraordinarily, you know, uh, verification. verification. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. And we, th we threw it away. This president threw it away. Um, and on, on North Korea, we continue to adhere to this idea that North Korea can never have a nuclear bomb, even though they have 20 nuclear bombs, as opposed to accepting the reality that they have nuclear weapons. And how do we deal with that reality? as opposed to saying, no, you can't have them. Which, by the way, I, 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 I'm not criticizing Trump so much. This was an Obama administration view also. So I, you know, my, my response is, is I'm not, we're not questioning that there are things out there that are threatening, that things out there that can destabilize international peace and security. 
but we have plenty of effective tools to deal with them that are not just the 82nd Airborne. All right, so I want to thank uh, Michael and Micah for all their work on this subject over the years and, and congratulate them on the book. And I really, again, want to thank Sharon for coming here today and commenting. Thanks to all of you. Um, I'm going to, to close with a passage from the book and a, and a last reminder, do buy the book. Uh, that's why you're here, of course. Uh, those of you in attendance can do so, uh, and Michael and Micah might even sign them. Uh, those of you watching online should purchase the book at your favorite books, bookseller. I want to just read a quick passage from the book uh, as a call to action on Michael and Micah's part. And again, uh, the good service of the Cato Institute is now putting it into, into uh, is implementing it. They say, you can combat the threat in industrial complex by sharing not only comforting words and resilient rhetoric, but also evidence and information that puts the alleged threats into perspective. This will not make you naive or Pollyanna-ish, but rather empowered and accurate. And yes, that's true. So please do check out the Cato site, www.cato.org forward slash threat correction. That's where you can do that www.cato.org, Threat Correction. I really want to thank my colleague, Travis Evans, who's pulled that all together. And please let us know what you think. And with that, please join us uh, for continued discussion uh, over uh, drinks or snacks or whatever uh, in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Thank you very much. Thank you.